Welcome to the One America podcast. We are still in our series on cancel culture versus call out culture versus calling in culture, which is what I'm a fan of. I have a great guest today. She is a dear friend. She's a sister in Christ. She's a fellow academic. Dr. Christina Crenshaw is a professor, researcher, writer, and a justice seeker. For 15 years, she has taught faith and writing, social issues in education, vocational leadership, and human trafficking courses as a lecturer at Baylor University and as an assistant professor at California Baptist University. She is now at Dallas Theological Seminary, and we're going to talk about all that and the great work that she's doing there. Uh, She has had a firsthand experience with cancel culture. We're going to get to all that. Uh, This is my sister, Christina. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, So first of all, before we dig into things, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the Dallas Theological Seminary now and, and kind of set us up there. Sure. Yeah. So even before I left Baylor, before I you know, went viral and had this big kerfuffle that we'll talk about today, I did a fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship at Dallas Theological Seminary, um, really just trying to understand the integration of work and faith, faith and culture. How does the church engage the public square in a way that's meaningful, helpful, and also true to a Judeo-Christian worldview? Uh, so when all of you know what happened at Baylor came to fruition, I then transitioned over to DTS in a more full-time official capacity and essentially doing the same thing I was doing with the fellowship, but now as a associate researcher. You know, that's good work. And I love the work you're doing around faith. I love and admire the work you're doing around human trafficking and sex trafficking. And we'll talk about that towards the end when I uh, allow you to really give people a sense of the great work you're doing and how they can follow you and find you. And we'll save that for the end. But Um, Let's get right to it. So um, let me set the table here, folks. As you've been listening to this series that we started uh, in October when I was going through my cancel uh, culture experience on my college campus, uh, one of the people that reached out to me, of course, was Christina because she had been in the fire firsthand. And I really appreciated her outreach and support and even defense on Twitter because she's been through it. Like her, uh, my incident went viral into the media and um, it was probably the worst month of my life. It was awful. Um, There were no words. And um, one of the things that I want to talk about in this podcast that I think is important is in this episode is that we're undergoing a huge generational shift, Christina. It's huge. And with that generational shift of Gen Y and Z, you and I being Gen Xers, um, they have a whole different way that they look at gender, they look at identity, they look at sexuality, and it's a lot for a person over 40, 50, 60, 70 to digest. It's a whole new language. You can get into trouble real quick if you say the wrong thing, if you ask the wrong thing. And I'd like you to kind of just tell us a little bit about what happened to you at Baylor University and, you know, address it in the context that I've set, which is why was there such a vicious and visceral reaction to your Twitter post, which you'll tell everybody about? Um, because I've read it 10 times, what you yeah. wrote, and I'm still confused as to why they got 
why you got attacked. Like, I, I obviously don't know why I did either, but we'll get to me later. Uh, kind of give us what happened and why you think it was handled in the way it was. Yeah, sure. Just to um, reiterate everything that you are saying, um, I, I think sociologists have been warning us about this cultural shift. I mean, arguably a shift away from a, a theology that has you know, bound us um, and unified us in many ways. And, and you know, we're just becoming um, so diverse, not just in, in you know, race or beliefs, but even um, in thought. And, and you have probably heard by now that there's like 67 new gender pronouns. So diversity has become arguably our little G God. Uh, so I, you know, I'd heard about this, I'd been reading, I'm in academia, so I teach undergrad students, I've seen the shift firsthand, 15 years as a college professor, I have even read The Coddling of the American Mind long before it, you know, cancel culture happened to me, and, you know, irony of all ironies, just two years ago, when Andrew Sullivan had an article come out in New York Magazine, um, entitled We All Live on Campus Now, kind of warning all of us that this campus culture that we're seeing at Berkeley and, uh, you know, New York University, that this is happening in the public square too. So it wasn't that I was completely surprised. I think that I was astonished to see it happen on a Christian university for an overtly Christian stance that I took against Title IX's expansion to allow biological males to occupy and uh, biological female spaces, if that is how they identify. So the shock wasn't as much, oh no, is this where we are in this cultural moment? The, the real astonishment was, oh my goodness, is this where we are even on Christian campuses? So I think that, you know, the, the, the larger conversation here is like, hey, we can't just like subjugate this and relegate this to, oh, well, that only happens in non-faith-based spaces. This is happening in our faith-based spaces as well. Why do you think that is and why was it allowed to take the form that it did and the tenor that it did at a Baptist university like Baylor that is well known for, you know, its conservative, if you will, Christian values? Um, why do you think it was allowed to escalate the way it was? Well, I think that I was seeing firsthand and I was just fodder for the fire, a cultural battle that has been an undercurrent on campus for a long time. I think that that's probably true of most college campuses. And I think that's true of Christian campuses as well, that there is this undercurrent um, where you've got postmodern secular narratives who are that are competing with these more orthodox, traditional, you know, biblical narratives, and, and they're in conflict. And um, specifically with my tweet, and, you know, just to paraphrase, it's, you know, it's still there. I responded to someone raising awareness about Title IX. Um, and just essentially said, hey, this expansion is not going to be good for women. And I responded and essentially said, yeah, this is unsafe. It's unfair. What about the rest of us who don't struggle with gender dysphoria? Don't we have a voice in this as well? No, cool. And I think cool was like a question mark or whatever. Um, so, you know, a week goes by. No one's really paying attention. You know how Twitter works. People either respond or ignore it or move on. But then I wake up a week later and the, the student newspaper wrote an article and the title was Dr. Crenshaw tweets transphobic message and needs to be fired. So I think as best I understand, this newspaper was working independently and, you know, with autonomy from the university. But I know from 15 years in the academy 
some adult, you know, someone out of undergrad had to give approval for that to go to print. And I don't know who that adult was, but that was a huge <laughs> misstep on their part. Because if you're going to slander and libel a Christian university, a Christian professor for having a Christian perspective at a Christian university, you can bet that those of us who are there for that reason and for that mission statement are going to have a very visceral response to that. Um, so then students started a petition to get me fired. It reached, I think, like 500 signatures, and it came out of the Baylor School of Social Work. I know that because they put their name on it. They're, you know, they're really proud that they're you know, progressing the narrative forward as, as social workers. But then what I ended up seeing, Sophia, and this was you know, like months of battle back and forth and back and forth, is you had students, and I, and I hesitate to even call them conservative. I would just call them like, you know, centric. They're either centered or conservative or, you know, really just rational. They can gather around, you know, biblical and biological truths about gender and gender differences and sex differences. But they came to my defense, you know, and, and they started threads and wrote letters to, to deans and to board of regents. Um, that, you know, a lot of like evangelical community rallied to my support. I had presidents of other universities reach out, former members of, you know, Trump's cabinet um, ambassadors reach out. So I felt very protected. But as I stepped back and I looked and said, okay, this is a Pandora's box that was opened. It's really not about me. It is about the battle of the narratives that we are allowing to infiltrate college universities, the public square, and even our church spaces. You know, as I listened to you if you replace you with me, we had almost an identical experience, which I think is not by accident as you and I are spiritual people. We've been friends a long time. We've done spiritual talks together, panels together. We first met at Liberty University here in Virginia mm -hmm. uh, and Beth Moore was there and Christine Kane and we shared a stage with them, which was fabulous. And um I don't think it's by accident that we both had identical experiences. The difference is I'm at a public university here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Christopher Newport University. And as you know, I had the audacity to see that on National Coming Out Day, which I didn't realize it was National Coming Out Day. I didn't know. I wasn't aware. And of course, DC Comics decided they were going to make Superman and Lois Lane's son bisexual and have mm -hmm. him come out with another male and they had a very graphic image of the young son of Superman uh, grabbing another boy who had pink purple hair and, and kissing him. And the other boy looked a little bit like sheepish, if you will, almost like he was kind of being grabbed. Uh, mm -hmm. Hard to explain the image. You can Google it folks and see it for yourself. But I had a visceral response as did literally millions of other people, most of them Christians, some of them parents and others, but my response, like yours, was thoughtful. It was respectful. And I asked a question. I didn't even offer an opinion as much as I asked a question, which is, how does a Christian parent talk to their son or daughter about this? Um, and most of them will not be able to. That was mm -hmm. my question. Now, I got back some thoughtful comments from LGBTQ plus people saying, well, this is how I would do it. And this is how friends have done it. And it's no big deal. Okay, fine. Then I went on and I had a thread, as you know, talking about the over-sexualization of our children. And I was saying, I don't want them to have a Christian character with a cross around their neck. I don't want them to have heterosexual characters having sex because they're kids, they're young people, and we need to protect. We're going to come back to this word protection because you've raised it. I want to protect them. I want them to have some happiness, some joy, some levity, some heroes in their life. 
in their comic books and otherwise. I walked away from the feed, just like you, not thinking anything about it. Two days went by, didn't think about it. And I get a call from my dean who had literally just returned from Scotland uh, doing some work at one of the universities over there. And poor thing, she's besieged by this LGBTQ plus community is angry and they say you're anti-gay. This is the text that I get. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm anti-gay, huh? And then I realized at some point it had to be the Superman tweet. I went back. I looked. Yeah, there were some nasty comments and, you know, the usual. Look, I get death threats. It's, It's the world we live in now. It's how people talk to you. So I tend to ignore it. But there was this professor, uh, Christina, who, uh, Dr. Stern, who is openly bisexual, and she is the one that really lit a match under this and then took it into the college campus, like your tweet, had nothing to do with your work at school, had nothing to do with you teaching, was not done on your campus, was not done in a classroom. And within three days, there was a firestorm that just went out of control. And like yourself, I was in shock. The difference between us is um, I really didn't have any support. And the worst part was, is that um, I'm the first black female scholar in residence in the history of the school. And the mob that came after me on a campus that is overwhelmingly 95% Caucasian, particularly in the faculty, maybe 2% of the faculty is black, if that uh, mm-hmm. other people of color, um, and the numbers aren't better. Um, and of course, it just became this horrible experience from hell where uh, things like you made us feel unsafe, you're doing violence, uh, you're triggering us. I had never experienced anything like it. So your point is well taken in that this is a shift, like something we've never seen. And you know, the work that fire does and ADF does and all of these groups, it's happening on campuses literally every day. Europe, in the United States, abroad, uh, where academic freedom is under threat. So we both set the table. We've both been through this. And I want to get your thoughts on, give us a few thoughts on what happens next. Um, How do we fix this? Is this fixable? Um, And what's going to be the responsibilities of universities, both public and private? What, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think when I kind of step back and I look at the macro narrative, that's where I find hope. You know, the pendulum always shifts. You know, you can look back just the last century and you can see where we have swung more progressive, where we've swung more conservative. And and I hate that these terms have become pejorative because they shouldn't be. You know, there are a lot of great tenets to progressive ideology. I am thankful for unions and progressive movement that we no longer have children working in factories like we did at the turn of the you know 20th century. I am thankful for the conservative movement who has protected the sanctity of, of marriage and women's spaces. You know, so it takes both is really my point, right? So these are not meant to be pejorative terms when I use progressive and I use conservative. Mm-hmm. But the macro perspective gives me hope. I know that the pendulum will shift. Will it ever shift back to a place where we can 
honor free speech in the public square without slandering and libeling, where there aren't consequences that outweigh whatever the perceived offense was. I'm not so sure, but I do know that as people raise awareness, like we're doing right now and saying, hey, this is really dangerous, the, gr the ground that we are treading, and this is not where we want to go, that this is not going to bode well for anybody, I think people start to listen and the pendulum starts to shift. Um, and we won't unpack this, you know, for today's episode, but as, as your listeners are well aware, SCOTUS right now is, you know, reconsidering, you know, what should be the laws around abortion and, you know, when is life viable and you, where your listeners land on that, that that's not the point. But the point is the pendulum does end up shifting as new information comes to the table and we have to listen to the new information and consider it. And so I'm hoping, Sophia, that we can get back to this classical liberal perspective where let's bring all the good ideas to the table and we'll move from there. We'll sift through everything that is fringe and not helpful and harmful or seeks to cancel or shut down right and left because both sides do it. And let's get back to this classical liberalism that says, may the best ideas emerge and win. So let's unpack that. Uh, I agree with everything you've said. I'm going to ask a provocative question. I'll answer it. You answer it. Uh, you and I are working on a piece. We're not going to say what outlet or anything because we never want to give our haters an ability to try to undercut. You'd be amazed what people will try to do when they know you're going to out them. They really don't like that. Um, has the LGBTQ plus community specifically gone too far? Before you answer that, uh, let me give a little context. We all know about Dave Chappelle and Netflix. Uh, we know... You know many instances, I know many instances, where diversity, equity, and inclusion statements have gotten a lot of professors in trouble. Uh, one of the biggest examples being the professor, uh, I think he was at MIT, the, the, the global physicist guy who was supposed to give a lecture and it got yes. canceled. Mm -hmm. um, and when Princeton said, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. And that's because, uh, Robert George is there. And I think that's his name. He's the professor there at Princeton who has the academic freedom Alliance. And, um, they invited him and instead of the normal 500 people, they usually get, they had 8,000 people uh, sign wow. up. for. The and the point is, is that People are tired of these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements being what they call shoved down their throat, and they have to abide by them. And folks, this isn't just happening in academia. It's happening in corporate America. For those of you that don't know, I'm an adversity champion award winner. Um, this is an area where I've been speaking and teaching both at universities and in corporations for the better part of a decade or more and have won awards for my work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the things, Christine, that the, the LGBTQ plus students and faculty who were angry at me did was they didn't just attack me as a human being, like you said, and they absolutely libeled and slandered me with their favorite words of transphobe. And they called me a racist even, which no one can still explain where they came up with that one. I don't know if I'm a racist against Krypton, the planet, and, you know, the <laughs> characters. I'm not really sure. But this is the garbage that they do. And I'm going to be pretty firm about how I feel about this because I really don't care anymore, which is that they feel entitled to destroy you. And this group in particular, more than any other group, African-American groups don't do this. Women's groups don't do this. Um, you could argue that Time's Up and Me Too 
uh, have been very effective in getting some of these men prosecuted. But if you're raping and sexually assaulting women, that's what should happen to you. That's a serious crime. What the LGBTQ plus community has done, Christine, is they equate a question from me, a statement from you based, like you said, on biological facts, me asking a question around my faith and a faith position. And they take that and they say you're doing violence to them and they say you're dangerous and they say you've made them unsafe. And then they skank you up on the Internet. They ruin your reputation. They make it unsafe for you to stay on campus. You're not viable anymore because nobody wants to come near you, take your classes, whatever, because it's a mess. And then you're damaged. And all of this because you simply either disagreed or you asked a question or stated a position. Have they gone too far? And what, again, is the answer to that for those of us who want academic freedom, want free thought, want free speech? Like you said, it is the public square. If, if we can't do this on college campuses, we're kind of in trouble. So, so yeah. I've asked you a lot there, but I'm going to let you unpack that. Yeah. And just to transition us, if we can't do it on college campuses and we can't do it on Christian college campuses, we're in big trouble, which is, I think, where everyone, you know, sort of sympathized with me because I had so many people who were not believers reach out and people who were atheists, but gather around biological troops who, you know, came out in my Mm -hmm. support. Um, So, yeah, you know what I saw, Sophia, to to answer your question, has the LGBTQ agenda gone too far? I think the short answer to that is yes. And then to kind of nuance that out, you know, when we first saw this narrative emerge, you know, 1970s, 80s, 90s, they were advocating for same-sex marriage. And I will concede that I think that the religious right, the moral majority was not nearly as kind and compassionate as they probably should have been. I think that we conflated our religious perspectives with our um, American values and that in a pluralistic democracy, you can't impose your religious views on Agreed. The, the rest, you know, so in, in that spirit, I would say that there needed to be a distinction between same sex civil unions that we supported as an American as Americans. And then there needed to be a distinction for Christian Americans who said um, we cannot theologically support same sex marriage. And I think that that would have shifted the atmosphere some. It would have mitigated a lot of the visceral and hate that has been building over the year if we conceded that there is a difference between how we act in the public square and then how we interact with sacred spaces, that those are two different places. But what's happening now is that those narratives have been conflated. You and I have talked offline about how um, the LGBTQ narrative also co-opted race conversations, which I'm over here as a white woman. I'm like, they are not the same issue at Um, all, at all. But we, and that's where I think, you know, people of color have to, to have the fortitude to stand up and say, Hey, listen, I understand that you feel this way, but your feelings are not necessarily the same as my biological racial reality. Those are immutable characteristics. And I know that members, I know that gay men, uh, lesbian women, Uh, will say to you, and I get why they would feel this way. Hey, I've known that I felt this way since I was a child. I knew I was attracted to women or I knew I was attracted to men. And so this was something I was born with. And I'll I'll give that to them. I'm not in their shoes. I don't know how that feels. 
I can't imagine that it is a great thing to wake up and realize, as I did at some point as a black little girl that became a teenager and a woman, that I was different mm -hmm. because my skin was different. Didn't matter mm -hmm. if it was fair or in other members of my family were as black as coal. It didn't matter. What mattered is, is that there are attachments, right, to our gender, to our race that have nothing to do with us. They come from, as you talked about, the sociology and the psychological sociology, if you will, the pathology sometimes of America, of other countries, of the colonialism, patriarchy, which we're going to touch mm -hmm. on in a moment. And I think that you've said something uh, very important, which is where I want to us to stick and we're going to go a little long today but this is going to be popular because it's substantive and people want to talk about this i i think the thing that broke my heart the most and i don't know how you felt about what happened to you is that so many professors most of them white and male by the way conservative white men reached out to me called texted emailed were sending me screenshots of stuff um a lot of students as well um, even some LGBTQ plus students that I had had uh, in my teaching over the previous semester reached out to me privately on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, or emailed me at work and wanted to speak up and defend, but they were afraid because they said, if they come for you like this, what are they going to do to me if I speak up? And that really bothered me. And yeah. the kids sending me screenshots of like how the student government's interesting. This school paper did the same to me that they did to you. I woke up one day and there was this headline, LGBTQ plus students stand up to Sophia Nelson. And then they told me I could have an open letter and they would do a Q&A. And then the day it was supposed to be published, oh, for reasons we can't really get into, blah, 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 blah. We, you know, we can't do it right now. But they let the professor who was bisexual uh, they gave her a platform and let her have forum after forum. I mean, Christine, these kids and these faculty at, at my school had no less than six forums over a three-week period where I was silenced. I could not talk. I could not participate. I wanted to call in. I wanted to be there. And I was told that my hate speech did violence and that they needed time to heal and they had to vent. And yeah. it was horrific. And it was horrible and it was disgusting and it was wrong. And what I'm saying is it became a lynch mob. Let's call it what it is. And I was on defense. Then it spills into the media. I'm being wheeled into surgery. I had surgery on my bladder, which was not pleasant and fun. And I'm literally being wheeled into surgery. And I've got reporters from all over calling me about the protest and the petition. And so I say all that to say that all of this out of asking a very civil, respectful question about a comic book character, and now all of a sudden, I can't even go back to campus anymore. Because not because the university leadership has told me to stay away, but because it's a clearly hostile work environment. Uh, they, they, the emails and some of the garbage I've gotten are disgusting. And mm -hmm. I sit here now, I'm a scholar in residence, the first in history. I'm skanked up. I'm beat up. I can't show my face because of threats and ignorance. And, and as one professor said to me, we'd love to have you back, but we're worried it's going to escalate again. And, and, and in other words, we can't upset these people. We can't tick them off again uh, because if we do that, we might flare this all up again. Yeah. Uh, and so I just 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's out of control. And I think that, you know, blackballing Dave Chappelle, he can't go to the Cannes Film Festival and all this other stuff. And I I just want to know where we go from here because this group has too much power, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people. And it's not okay. Sophia, you may recall that one of the things that I said to you when I first reached out was stand your ground, don't capitulate, don't cater to the narrative. I mean, if you had done something actually wrong, I'm a big believer in repenting. I repent to my kids almost daily, usually for saying a curse word, honestly, (laughs) in traffic. But you know, like I had to repent for saying a four letter word on the way to school yesterday to my kids. So I'm a big believer if you did wrong, repent. But if you didn't, and this is your stance, then you don't capitulate because that hurts not only you, but the rest of us who are over here trying to gain ground and maintain ground um, around reasonable, civil, biological ideas. Um, so I, I did apologize that- and 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 twice online in, in the sense of, and you probably saw it where I said, hey, I get it. You know, I'm a pundit. I'm a paid pundit, TV personality, author, whatever. And I'm used to saying what I want, how I want, whatever. And I get that in a university setting, we have a lot of community. So I'm going to come to campus. We're going to talk about it. Please know I meant no offense. It was it was a, sure. a thread. And, and, and you know what I got? That pissed them off. My apology wasn't good enough. That wasn't right. You can never apologize enough to that community, which is why I'm saying, unless you really did something wrong and offensive, don't apologize. Just say, I am, I'm so sorry. I can't apologize on behalf of 2000 years of orthodoxy, or I can't apologize on behalf of biology. It's not my fault that in the womb, there's DNA coding that makes you male or female. Right. So, I mean, like, those are the kinds of things around like be mad at biology or be mad at, it's not just Christianity, by the way. I mean, if you look at you know islam or other world religions there are teachings on what makes somebody male and female or around sexual ethics so i don't know why christians alone get a bad rap on this i guess just because we're the majority in america but yeah i think that's the thing you you don't apologize you stand your ground but not in a way that is giving them the middle finger but in a way that you just say you know i liken it really to the way that i interact with with my children i don't mean to say that in a derogatory way even though these college kids are young enough to be my children you know I'm 40 they're 19 20 I could almost be their mother but it you know I tell my kids no a lot out of love like it's it's so very rare to never that I'm saying no just to be cruel like the no is coming from a place of love or that I'm so sorry but I cannot give you what you're asking for it's coming from this real place of love and compassion and it's just my hope that at some point they see that, even if they completely disagree, the, the LGBTQ community, even if they disagree with why I'm saying no, I hope that they come to a place where they can at least respect she's saying no because this is her religious worldview. She's saying no because she's leaning into biology here. And so I hope that that love eventually lands on them. But they don't respect that, and that's they the don't. problem. They, they don't. don't. And, and Sophia, don't. to your point, um, I had far more people support me than slander me, but I did receive 788 messages. And I know that only because I had to hire a former student to curate it all for me and put it in an Excel spreadsheet, you know? And I'm like, okay, you put Fox and Friends and Tucker Carlson and Ali Bufstecki and all of these people at the top, put concerned colleagues and friends in the middle, and then put all of the angry students at the bottom. So I actually got a quantitative visual of what was going on. And when I scroll to the bottom and I'm looking over in the Excel spreadsheet at the copy and pasted comment, I got things from that the scariest was 
we know where your children go to school and we're not afraid to hurt them like your words have hurt us. And I'm like, what kind of a delusional yep. world are you living yep. in that you think my hate speech words, which of course, reasonable people we're know not. is not hate speech, right? Totally. Um, what kind of a delusional world are you living in that you think it is okay to commit an actual crime because of a yep. perceived thought crime? Yep. I got the same kind of garbage. We won't tolerate you here. Piss <laughs> off. And and it was given to the, the I tell you what, I'm not going to get into what I'm going to do about it, but I am going to do something about it. And in a big way. And I am not the kind of person who allows one. It's hard being a woman, being a woman in academia, being a woman in the law, being a woman in medicine. You and I both know that journey is tough. It's harder being a woman of color. And I am in my yes. mid fifties now about to be 55 years old next month. And I've worked very hard for everything I've gotten. I didn't have privilege. I didn't come from a family with anything, everything I got, I worked hard for it. Trust mm -hmm. me. And to have a bunch of pissed off kids and some faculty over something that they turned into a national incident, literally, that has cost me speaking. It has hurt some of my contracts. It has severely damaged me in the academic world. It, look, I was reached out to like you by other colleges and universities, my alma maters, both undergrad and law school, every HBCU president or a member of uh, the, the administration reached out to me here in the Commonwealth and otherwise. Um, a couple of our major universities said, hey, if you need a place to land, come here. But it has been rough. And I am mm -hmm. left with the damage of the nuclear bomb that they exploded. And that's not acceptable. And you can't just call people racist, folks. You can't call people homophobes and transphobes and anti-gay and say they did violence to you. And then, like you, threaten to hurt your children, mm -hmm. threaten to hurt me, threaten to... Do all manner of vile things. Call me the N-word. Call me a B-word. This is your civility, folks? Is this is this what we're doing? Can you speak to that? Because this group, more than anyone, demands respect, civility, and tolerance, and they give none of it to people with whom they disagree. Right, which I think is the overarching thesis statement of everything that we could say in rebuttal to what has happened to us, that you are demanding tolerance, but you show none. You're demanding compassion, but you show none. And one of the most bothersome, irksome parts about this whole narrative, and this is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the word woke, but wokeism and, and then specifically LGBTQ narratives is that you only get to have a voice in a platform if you've got all the intersectionality. You gotta be completely intersectional. The more intersectional you have, the more clout you have, to speak to any issue. And then ironically, you, Sophia, have all the intersectionality that one yep. would say you need. And it doesn't matter because nope. you questioned the narrative because you challenged nope. the per pervasive thought. And so they just steamrolled you right over. You know who so were the nastiest to me? White women. White women yeah. colleagues were the nastiest, most vicious. And like you, you know, I'm a lawyer, so you know I documented. I've got every CDM, every everything, and white women were the nastiest, most vicious, and saying things like, oh, can you go a day without saying you're a black woman? And so to them, unless I was team LGBTQ+, 
I, they don't care if they violated my civil rights. They don't care if they violated workplace rights. They don't care if they created a hostile work environment. They don't give a rat's patootie about any of that. Because if I don't buy in lock, stock, and barrel, one white woman who's an alum had the nerve to send an email, open email, and attack me, say I had no integrity, I had no honor, I betrayed myself as a black woman because somehow I don't support bisexuality. And can I just say for the record, no, folks, I'm a Christian. I don't agree with that for my life. What you do with your life is your life. And I don't think I have to know about that. That's another conversation for another day. Yeah, and on support- that, I would agree with you, Sophia, totally. Yes, yeah, I don't support same-sex marriage, but I support civil unions. And I don't support same-sex marriage, nor does the new governor of Virginia support it. And, and, and he just got elected and did pretty well by a large majority of people who I promise you aren't Christians. Because at the end of the day, we have different issues that we vote on, that we care about, that our day-to-day lives focus around other than our sexuality. And I think to that point, Christine, curious about identifying based on our sexuality versus our gender, whatever. Is, is that the new place we are now that we all have to use these pronouns? And is that where we are? Yeah, well, I know. Here's what I would say on that, and this is a, a you know broader conversation, but unfortunately, as you mentioned in the beginning, we now identify everybody based on their sexuality. We have lost this common bond. I mean, it used to be that atheists would humanity. just identify humanity, right? You would just, yeah. you know, you're human flourishing. Um, you know, for Christians and, and arguably other religions as well, like that was your primary identity. I identify as a child of God or I identify as being made in the image of God. But that sort of rhetoric has taken back seat. Even human flourishing and, and identifying as just being, you know, a good person has taken the back seat because we live in such an over-sexualized culture. And part of what, you know, I was raising awareness about, it was I was wearing my anti-human trafficking advocate hat when mm-hmm. I responded to that tweet, because I can tell you the data on the increase of sexual exploitation of children online, particularly in 2020, 108 increase, a percentage increase. I can tell you the correlation between communities that have, you know, you're not even allowed to say sexually deviant anymore. That used to be an no. actual medical DSM-5 term, just like you know, um, gender dysphoria still yep. is a DSM five medical term, but you know, that's now an offensive term. People are like, I'm offended by your use. So like, well, then take that up with, you know, American psychological right. association. It's not right. my fault. Right. Um, but, but either way you can find a lot of correlation between these variables of, you know, sort of like sexual, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another word, a synonym than, than deviation, but um, just right, I hear not the norm. You hear what I I'm saying it. and trying to be com- compassionate. And so one of the things that you and I have talked about offline is tell me the connection. And this is, I'm really just throwing this out because I'm not even going to answer it. I'm not even going to be brave enough to answer it. I don't know if I have the answer, but, but kind of public, public population, tell me the correlation between, okay, we want access to same sex marriage and we, and we concede. Okay. Now we want access to whatever gender spaces, you know, with which we align because our civil rights are being violated. I see no violation of your civil rights. You have, you know, the same bathroom that aligns with your sexuality. You just don't want to use it. Um, your, bi- your biological sex. 
And now we have this other crew that's popping up that don't want to be called pedophilers because they yep. haven't actually committed a crime. Yep. They just have minor attraction. I can't help who I'm attracted to is the mantra, I, which is the same one I got from the bisexual group, which was we can't help who we're attracted to. And, you know, here at ODU, Old Dominion University in Virginia, uh, a professor got put on suspension. Um, pending an investigation because he was peddling this narrative that you're talking to Matt, go ahead and get into it. And then we need yeah, to Yeah, And I, I watched a snippet of his clip on Instagram because it was, you know, going viral. And so, mm -hmm. and I watched it. I would, and I was just, again, as a, as a mother, as an anti-human trafficking advocate, my heart sank. Um, is this where we are now? This is, this is what we're, we're doing here. You know, I was never one to say, oh, well, the LGBTQ narrative, their, their real goal is just to get to our children. I thought that was such a slippery slope leap in an argument. But what I am saying is then you tell me the onus is now on the LGBTQ narrative to combat this question, which is, is there no connection? Okay, so that's not on me to disprove because I do see the connection. So I am asking the LGBTQ community, then you stand up and you tell me how wanting same-sex marriage is vastly different from where we are now with this other group that identifies with, with LGBTQ plus narratives and is asking to be allowed to express their same-sex minor attraction without any sort of you know thought consequence there. Because, because to me, it seems connected. So if it's not, then I am asking the community to speak up and speak against that. And I yeah. think that's what we need to see more of. We need to see people who are like, you know, I, I am gay, I'm, I'm lesbian, I'm, I'm homosexual, but what I do with my spouse is really not conversation for the public square. And I Absolutely. can respect that as an American. Absolutely. But when people start asking to come into, males start wanting to come into my protected spaces, which is yep. sexually unsafe, it's, yep. it's unfair for all the female athletes. Happened right here in Loudoun County, you know, right? Totally. Right here in Loudoun County, Virginia, a father, you know, was, was locked up at a board, a school board meeting because of this very issue where we are not taking this seriously and what's happened is and i, I kind of want to segue so hold your thought because we're, we're we're 40 minutes in um i think that the big issue here is this folks um this podcast we're talking about two women who are um, allies who are champions for women's rights we are women of faith we are in academia we're well-read published all these things we pride ourselves i hope on being good human beings because of our faith and uh you know christina remember what happened to you where the lgbtq plus students felt that after you sent your tweet somehow you were no longer someone they could rely on as a friend or an ally right right in fact sophia i haven't mentioned this sure. part but i think it is worth bringing to attention I mean, assuming they're not fibbing or lying about this, in the article they wrote about me, they said, we are so sad to have to take Dr. Crenshaw off of our LGBTQ safe list. She was one of our safe professors. So I'm over here like, first of all, didn't know you had a safe list. I'm not sure what credentials got me on the safe list, but thank you, because I am a safe person. So whatever yep. you saw you me me on Monday, I am the same person on Tuesday when that yep. to stop here at the end of the first 40 minutes of this amazing podcast and do what Oprah calls and have an aha moment. 
Dr. Crenshaw is amazing. Her experience at Baylor mirrors mine at Christopher Newport University, almost identically so. But there were differences. And in this next part, she's going to talk about how professors on campuses are often identified as safe or unsafe. She began to talk about it in the last segment, and we had a disconnect. But we're going to pick back up in this second part, which is shorter and powerful. So make sure you keep listening. We've got another 20 minutes for you. Hang with us. It's well worth it. Yeah, so Sophia, I had, when I woke up on a Tuesday morning to this student newspaper article that said, you know, Dr. Crenshaw is transphobic and needs to be fired, um, in the, I mean, the, the editorial that they wrote, they said that I have been on their LGBTQ safe list for years. And because I don't wholesale accept the narrative, they were taking me off and I'm unsafe. And I just thought, I hope that everyone else recognizes the contradiction and their own narrative. So whoever I was for all of these years, um, I was projecting and exuding safety and openness and tolerance and civility, whatever it takes, whatever criteria it is to get on this LGBTQ safe list. But because I then expressed that I am concerned about biological males access to biological female spaces, you're going to take me off the safe list. Well, Okay, but that says more about you than it does me. Just recognize that. Yeah, I mean, that's where we are, which is to wrap this part before we go into the last part and then we'll wrap the show, is they're they're very easily triggered, I'll use their word, uh, and they use the I'm unsafe narrative. And instead of dialoguing and asking for clarity or saying, well, okay, you agree with us on 70% of stuff, uh, but maybe not 30%. Okay, we can work with that. And, you know, I remember as you will when, you know, a decade or more ago when Professor Michael Eric Dyson, who, by the way, is an ordained Baptist minister, who's very pro-LGBTQ, et cetera, outed me and Roland Martin and Jamal Bryant and a bunch of us in the black community and called us sexual rednecks and sexual bigots because we did not agree with same-sex marriage. Can I just say something to all my listeners? Buckle up and listen. Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton... Barack Obama in 2008 did not support same-sex marriage. They Mm -hmm. only supported it in the second term uh, in 2012 before Obergefell became the law of the land. And they changed. But they had the same position as me and a majority of Americans at that time. That is probably more evenly split now, I suspect, based on the data that I've seen and some of the Pew uh, polling, et cetera. But my point is this, to your point. You are still a safe person. You are still a person who's always open to dialogue, as am I. And they could not give me the courtesy of showing up to campus and getting there. They didn't know I was sick and was having major surgery because that's not something I felt I needed to put out and nor did the university. But what they did, Christina, which is exactly what they did to you, is for weeks they hold the microphone, they hold the narrative, and they go berserk. And they they just slander you and libel you and trash talk you and ruin you. And you're on such defense that you you kind of can't even get a word in edgewise. And yeah. um, it's it's got to stop. It's got to change. Um, I hope that you and I will be a part of that change. And like I said, stay tuned. You will get a lot more from Dr. Crenshaw and I. We're going to be doing some things together. We're both busy women, but this is important to us because we never, ever want any professor anywhere 
or an executive in a corporation or someone in industry to be treated the way we were treated, um, it messes with your life, right? You, you, you're emotionally upset. You kind of can't sleep. You can't eat. You're worried about your job. You're worried about your financial future. And yeah. any group that has that much power has too much damn power. Thoughts on that before we segue to the last part? Well, yes, I would say that I think people who, you know, have engaged in these sort of battles before knew to check on me. And I was deeply appreciative for that. But one professor I had, um, not that it was my former professor, but a professor colleague that I'm acquainted with checked on me and said, you know, Christina, we have a friend and, and I'll withhold his name for the podcast who was attacked by online Twitter mob because he had a stance against masks and COVID on his campus. It was University of Virginia wow. that um, disagreed with, you know, kind of the pervasive narrative and they came after him and he ended up committing suicide. Jesus. And when I heard that, I mean, Sophia, that wrecked me because I think in that moment, it touched on how deep and dark online bullying can go that yeah. this male in his fifties ended yep. up taking his life because he felt so attacked by the thought police mob. And I can, I can say by the grace of God, I never got there, but man, Sophia, yeah, there, it was a battle internally. I was paranoid of houses driving cars driving by my house. I had to call my kids school and, and they knew because there's a deep connection between where they go to school and Baylor University. So they knew what was going on, but no person should ever have to feel like their physical well-being is in danger. And as best I can tell, and I have research and research and research, there are, there, there's like no documented cases of LGBTQ people really being violently hurt for their, their beliefs and their, 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 no, their never. sexual identity. Right. Nope. I'm like, this is not a real problem. Like, of course you can find those outlier cases or that what about, or what about this? Or, you know, there was someone who was beat up in the bathroom or whatever. There, there are always going to be outlier cases, but, but the, 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 the thing I stand on, the stance I will say here is it is more of a problem to bully people for their thoughts that that is causing far more damage than us saying, Hey, let's find a solution to let's dialogue. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Do we need to have more single stall bathrooms in public spaces? Great. Yep. I mean, I hate going into Starbucks after a meal. It's disgusting, but I'm willing to do that. And it actually helps me as a mother, every mother out there will thank you because I don't like sending my nine and eight year old little boys into the male bathroom unaccompanied, right. you know, like I, I, I am discriminating, you know, uh, equally here. Like I don't want them going to any bathroom unaccompanied. So if we have single stall bathrooms and that allows the transgender community to go in and feel safe, wonderful. That also benefits people who don't want their children going into a bathroom unaccompanied as well, right? So like, let's have conversations about this, but we're not just going to cancel people because they no. disagree with the narrative. And that, and that is my, my bottom line Yeah, there. I think for me, and, and I'm, I'm heartbroken to hear that story about that professor. And I remember friends of mine in the faith community and otherwise reaching out to me because they also knew that I was dealing with some physical stuff. I had just had a breakthrough case of COVID like a month and a half earlier. Mm -hmm. I was still dealing with that. And then I was having some major surgery and, and I go from there's this amazing article out and all this great press about me being the first black female scholar in residence at one of Virginia's premier public colleges. And it's a big deal. And all of a sudden it's it's a nightmare. And while like you, I'd never got to the place where I thought I would hurt myself. I stopped eating. I couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. um, I was very stressed out because the boards that I sit on. 
I, I had to explain myself to the chairmen of the boards. Uh, I have a new book coming out. I had to explain myself to my publisher. I have other deals and other uh, projects that I have pending. And we had to systematically go through and explain because the power of this LGBTQ plus community is that not only will they destroy you for a thought or a question or a comment, but then they will stalk where you speak. They will stalk mm. where you go to do anything else. And they'll tell them that they don't want you there. You're a bad person. This is bullshit. I'm going to call it what it is. My words, not Christine's. And like I said, I will not let this go unanswered. And it will not. And um, my hope is that if I have to be the person that is going to be one of the people that champions this cause for others, uh, like that professor who took his life, then that's what God has called me to do. And I believe that. And it's it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. I have much better things to do with my time. But I am not going to allow this to happen to anybody else ever again within the power that I have. So let me segue to the final part of this I want to talk about. We're going to have you back and you and I are going to have a whole show, maybe do a series on intersectionality because that has to be discussed. And it's something that you and I both study uh, understand and get that is really something that needs to be put on the table. And folks, by intersectionality, I mean the intersection of race and gender and how mm -hmm. that plays out in what we're talking about today and how we show up in the workplace, et cetera. But Christine, you had a post on um, Instagram the other day that I really thought was powerful. We started this podcast talking about um, cancel culture and humanity and how we need to really think about what we're doing to other people and how we treat them. And we need to approach each other first as human beings before we get into our beliefs and, and, and what our tribe may think, you know, me as a black woman, you as a white woman, somebody as an LGBTQ plus or transgender, whatever. Um, but you talked about protection versus patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great place to end this segment because one of the other things that's a, under attack in our culture is masculinity, not toxic max masculinity. That should be under attack. That's a bad thing. But mm -hmm. I'm talking about the role of men, women being protected or not. And you talked about that. And you had some interesting comments on your feed from people. Um, tell me why you made that post, because it fits into your cancel culture experience and what you'd like people to take away from that. Yeah. So, you know, even a couple of years ago, like you, Sophia, to back up, this was never the platform I thought I would have. This was never the research agenda I wanted. I have had to become sort of a lay expert. I know it's a bit of an oxymoron, but you know, more than the average person, I now know transgender narratives and LGBTQ, and I've had to read widely and listen to, to just even navigate the conversations that we're having. That was never really my intent, but it is the platform that I've been given. I want to steward it well. But even before all of this, I would have called myself a Christian feminist. If we're defining feminism as, you know, any um, sort of profession or professional space that a male can occupy, a woman can too, um, that I would say that generally I could gather around those ideals. Now, of course, 
I don't mean that, you know, a male can be a birthing person, just like a female can be. No, that's still a mother or that a male can chest feed. No, anybody chest feeding is a female, right? So, I mean, but I have always gathered around this idea that women have equal value and equal worth. And if women want to join the military, which my mother was one of the first women in the army, she was part of this first special group, you know, like I've always had strong women role models. But I'm also married to a man. I uh, I have two little boys that I'm raising. And I don't want to see uh, masculinity plowed over by the pursuit of, you know, feminism. That I think it can coexist in this space. That, you know, I believe that when we elevate both genders equally, that that is what's best for all of us. Um, but I think within that same perspective, the thing that I am concerned about is that I see, and this this is not new to this cultural moment. I really think that it's more of like a fourth, third and fourth wave feminism, which has said in order to elevate ourselves as women, we have to um, sort of like de-escalate, de-elevate, um, undermine men. And even if that wasn't the actual articulated rhetoric, it's still the underlying philosophy. And that's always bothered me because I have had overwhelmingly great relationship with male leaders. Male leaders have opened the door for me in academia. Now, not all of them, but I am not willing to say that a few are indicative of the whole, just like even with Baylor University, I'm like a few crazy students did this, but the whole of Baylor University is healthy and fine and good. And if you wanna send your kid there, great, I'll help you navigate that. Um, so the whole of masculinity and the whole of, you know, what we're calling the patriarchy is still great leadership and good male leaders invite women to co-lead and co-labor, which is very biblical Absolutely. alongside them. Absolutely. And as we had said before the podcast began, I said, here's why I'm a fan of patriarchy. If I'm caught in a dark alley and I'm being attacked, I don't want a woman, a feminist standing in the gap for me. I want a male to come around and protect their right. biologically Ditto. stronger, they're taller. You know, I, I want that sort of protection. And so I think that the patriarchy doesn't have to have negative connotations. And that post was, it was trying to redeem that in a way to say like, Hey, there's bad patriarchy, but there's good patriarchy, just like there's bad matriarchy and there's good matriarchy. Well, I think what struck me was because I had the same experience. The, the people who rallied to me and supported me and talked with me and checked on me were white males. Yes. It, 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 it was, it was a very eye opening experience. I'm very similar with the game. And uh, me coming up as a young black woman in the law, my mentors were white men because people like me didn't exist and very few white women existed. But I found throughout my career, it has been white men and men who've been more helpful, not always, but most of the time more than women. And again, that's a whole other podcast. So listen, guys, I'm going to wrap this because this is run long, but it's worth it. We're going to break this up into segments and do outtakes because it's such a great conversation. But Christina, I appreciate you, one, because of who you are, what you do, and, and keeping it all together, mom, wife, professor, activist, all the things you do. I'm glad that you survived the whole Baylor horror situation intact and have moved on and were able to speak about it and talk about it as I have been able to and will be uh I would have been a lot more on television and all over the place, but I had to buckle down and finish a book in the middle of the chaos. So uh, all of that will start up 
uh, in the new year. And I, like I said, you and I are working on something and I hope we're going to do a lot more because this is an important issue for our time. And I think you and I both agree. We don't want anybody else to ever be treated the way we were. So I'm going to give you the last word, tell people how they can find you on social media, um, read any works you have, any books you have. And, um, you know, we're going to have you back again and again. Yeah, thanks, Sophia. So I would say, you know, my short answer to this is always now just Google me. I don't know if that would have been true before 2021, but I think so much of my story is now out there that there's just pages and pages on, you know, people writing about it. Um, but I'm not actually all that active on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and I and I love anybody who wants to come on and support and, and rally around the things I'm saying. I'm most active on Instagram, just kind of more my jam. Um, and then I have a website, drchristinacrenshaw.com, and you can see there work I've done really around women's spaces, around anti-trafficking, faith integration. Um, that is where you can find things that I've written and published and, and spoken on. Well, again, um, this has been a great word, a great conversation. I know that it will upset some people, and I'm okay with that. Um, it's the truth. It's not just our truth. It is the truth. It can be Googled, like she said, and you can read all about her story and mine. And mine is still in process. Hers has finished, thank God. And again, I think you came out the victor, uh, Christina. I think that Baylor, uh, to their credit, uh, I believe offered you an apology, right? And um, they did administration. I wouldn't exactly call it an apology as much as I would call it a support. If yeah, that delineation makes sense. They did support right. me. Yes. Right. Um, I got none of that from the administration of Christopher Newport University, which made it all hard to swallow. Um, instead, the president of Christopher Newport, uh, Paul Tribble, who, by the way, conservative, has Bible studies. Um, wow. Um, you know, United States senator, congressman. Uh, back in his younger days, someone I admired and respect really threw me under the bus in his statement and talking to people like Greg Lukanoff and others who do this work every day uh, or, you know, Tyson Langhofer of ADF. They said these guys do this stuff all the time. They try to appease the crowd. They try to, you know, have it both ways. And it ends up just causing way more problems, which is exactly what it did. Um my admonition to you, university professors out there, as well as uh, the administration and the leadership, is when these things happen, what, Christina, what you said is true. You're the adults. You're in mm -hmm. charge. Let the young people have their say. Give them a voice. But do not coddle this and do not sign off on things that you know are wrong morally, socially, and wrong for their growth as human beings. Uh, if we're teaching our young people, Christina, that the way to deal with conflict or something you don't like is to destroy somebody's life and their career and their reputation, we're teaching them the wrong thing right. because that's not real life. And at your job in real life, you will not be able to go to your boss and say, well, I don't like so-and-so over there. He makes me feel unsafe. Get rid of him or mm -hmm. I'm going to protest. It doesn't work that way. And so, again, I thank you for all you're doing. I thank you for your time. I look forward to the work we're doing together. And uh, happy holidays. Yeah, thanks. You as well. I've enjoyed it, Sophia. Take care. Okay, thanks.